All right, friends, well, welcome back. Um, we are going to dive into the last two chapters of Job today. Uh, and I know you may be asking, wait a minute, the last two chapters, we still have four weeks of class left. This is true. Um, but for the next few weeks after today, we're going to dig into um, a little bit more of the question of where is God in suffering? Uh, because Job is not the end of the story about what scripture has to say about where God is in suffering. And so we're going to continue to look at um, uh, that question and wrestle with that question together. Uh, but we're going to wrap up uh, Job today. So I'm really excited. Uh, and I hope you are too. So we've got God's response and then Job's response to God. Uh, so a brief recap of chapters 38 and 39. So we talked through this last week. Uh, Roger did a great job with that. And so we have God directly responding to Job. Um, so up to this point, um, the last 37 chapters or so, uh, it has been Job um, speaking to God and then his friends responding, but now we have um, God coming in and speaking directly to Job. Uh, and he speaks out of a whirlwind, which we talked a little bit about last week, about um, what that might signify and uh, the poetry behind that, about uh, the power behind that, um, and then also how that might be representative of, um, of Job's life, feeling a bit like a whirlwind, and God is speaking to him out of the midst of that. And then in chapters 38 and 39, God takes Job on a grand tour of the cosmos. He says, look at the stars, look at the constellations, think about the weather patterns, think about wild animals and their mating habits and how they eat and how they fly. Think about sunrises and sunsets. Think about the vastness of the ocean and who put those boundaries in place. And he takes him on this grand tour and says, I think about things, Job, that you never even consider. I created all of this. All of this is mine. And I have my eye on every last bit of it. Um, and then I just love to imagine, um, you know, even, even today, thousands of years later, there's so much that Job does not know. So he didn't know about planets. He didn't know about other galaxies. He didn't know about atoms or the elements. He didn't know about deep sea creatures that the eye cannot see. It's only through uh, submarine technology that we have today. He didn't know about microorganisms. Uh, there are so many things beyond his scale of knowledge that God knew about and God has his eye on that Job was not aware of whatsoever. Um, and it kind of just makes me wonder, like, with all this vast knowledge that we have, with the pictures that we have of space that have come out even in recent weeks, how much more do we still not know? Um, and God has his eye on all of it. Uh, Job has a human perspective, so it's limited. And not only does he have a limited human perspective, it is just one human life just the span of Job's lifetime in one place with all the particularity that comes with being um, a, a Jewish man in that, um, in that time, in that space. Um, there's so much that Job doesn't know. Uh, and the same is true for all of us as well. Uh, so we have this, this grand look at the cosmos. And then um, in chapter 40, verses 1 through 5, we have Job's response. And essentially he says, um, you're right, God, 
what could I even say? I'm going to put my hand over my mouth and stop talking. And so we have Job reverting back to the silence that he had held at the beginning of the book um, prior to, to kind of launching into all of these questions. Uh, we have him reverting back to the space of silence um, before God. And then God responds again. And once again, it's out of a whirlwind. Um, and then in verse 8, he says, will you condemn me just to prove that you are right? Um, see, Job has not considered in all of his um, anger around what God has done, uh, around his perception that God and his friends are calling him unjust and unrighteous. He must be unrighteous, otherwise these things wouldn't be happening. Uh, and so that's his big question for God. But in the process of questioning God about this, he's doing the very same thing to God. He is accusing God of not being righteous. And God is saying, wait a minute, both things can be true. I can be righteous in how I'm handling the situation, and you can be righteous as well. Um, and then in verses 11 through 14, God essentially says, uh, why don't you try your hand at justice? So I'm going to read a little bit of that uh, to us. Let's see. Uh, I'll just start in chapter 40, verse 1. Uh, then the Lord said to Job, do you still want to argue with the Almighty? You are God's critic, but do you have answers? Then Job replied to the Lord, I am nothing. How could I ever find the answers? I will cover my mouth with my hand. I have said too much already. I have nothing more to say. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind, Brace yourself like a man, because I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. Will you discredit my justice and condemn me just to prove that you are right? Are you as strong as God? Can you thunder with a voice like his? All right, Put on your glory and splendor, your honor and your majesty. Give vent to your anger. Let it overflow against the proud. Humiliate the proud with a glance. Walk on the wicked where they stand. Bury them in the dust. Imprison them in the world of the dead. Then even I would praise you, for your own strength would save you. So this is kind of calling back to what Job and his friends have been saying this whole time, that God should be punishing those who, um, who are unrighteous and unjust. And God is, is asking, well, would you, would you like to try? Would you like you know, to, to be the one holding the scales of justice? Uh, I would let you if you would like to do that. Uh, do you want to be responsible for the perfect repayment of all evil towards the proud? And that word proud, I think, is important. So hang on to that for just a second. And then we have chapters 40 um, and then, I'm sorry, 41, 40 verse 15 through um, the end of 41. Um, would you like to read that for us, Roger? Sure. Look at, <clears throat> look at Behemoth, whom I made along with you. He eats grass like cattle. Look, his strength is in his thighs, his power in his stomach muscles. He stiffens his tail like a cedar. The tendons in his thighs are tightly woven. His bones are like bronze tubes, his limbs like iron bars. He is the first of God's acts. Only his maker can come near him with a sword. Indeed, the hills bring him tribute, places where all the wild animals play. He lies under the lotuses, under the cover of reed and marsh. 
The lotuses screen him with shade, poplars of the stream surround him. If the river surges, he doesn't hurry. He is confident, even though the Jordan gushes into his mouth. Can he be seized by his eyes? Can anyone pierce his nose by hooks? Can you draw out Leviathan with a hook, restrain his tongue with a rope? Can you put a cord through his nose, pierce his jaw with a barb? Will he beg you at length or speak, or speak gentle words to you? Will he make a pact with you so that you will take him as a permanent slave? Can you play with him like a bird, put a leash on him for your girls? Will merchants sell him? Will they divide him among traders? Can you fill his hide with darts, his head with a fishing spear? Should you lay your hand on him, you would never remember the battle. Such hopes would be delusional. Surely the sight of him makes one stumble. Nobody is fierce enough to rouse him. Who then can stand before me? Who opposes me that I must repay? Everything under heaven is mine. I'm not awed by his limbs, his strength, and impressive form. Who can remove his outer garment? Who can come with a bridle for him? Who can open the doors of his mouth, surrounded by frightening teeth? His magic scales are his pride, closely locked and sealed. One touches another, even air can't come between them. I think that's probably... It, it kind of just goes on like that. We get a pretty detailed description of the almighty Leviathan uh, for the next few verses. So that's, uh, you're welcome to read them on your own, but it's, it's more of the same. So we have these two characters. So God has taken Job on this tour of the cosmos, and then God is talking about, um, okay, would you like to try your hand at justice for a minute? And then he launches into um, these detailed descriptions of these two um, creatures. We have Behemoth and Leviathan. Uh, and on first reading, you can kind of uh, be taken a little bit aback by this. Like, what, what is going on? What does this have to do with anything? What are these creatures, and how does this have to do with, uh, with God's response to Job? Why is he talking about this? Um, but when you look into it, uh, I think it's actually really interesting. So we have these two characters, Behemoth and Leviathan. And there are some who say that uh, Behemoth is a representation of a hippo and that Leviathan is a crocodile. Um, and then you also have others who say that um, they are actually representative of ancient Near Eastern mythological creatures. So um, these chaos creatures that kind of exist in the mythology of the surrounding areas. Um, these, these wild creatures that can't be tamed and that are very dangerous. They're symbols of danger and disorder in God's um, creation. And God is talking about all of, all of this. And, and God is talking about it not, not in a bad way. God is proud of these. I mean, he's going on and on about how great these things are, how mighty they are, how, how wild they are. Um, the commentary that I read, I thought... Uh, connected these really well, which I had not picked up on, but he essentially says that these are examples of the proud. So um, God has asked Job just before, would you like to judge the proud? And then he gives these two examples of these, this great behemoth and Leviathan. Um, and, you know, if we're, if we're going to go with their ancient Near Eastern mythological representations, very dangerous, right? Like a sea monster and a land monster. Uh, but even the hippo to this day is the deadliest land mammal. Uh, they kill hundreds or thousands of people in Africa every year. Um, 
Crocodiles, also very, very dangerous. They kill hundreds and thousands of people a year. So these are, uh, these are not something to mess with. These are wild creatures. You do not want these in your house. These are not pets. These are not things that you could tame. <laughs> Um, so what is God's point here? Uh, God is saying that creation is good. Even these two creatures are good. Um, but creation is not safe and creation is not perfect, at least not yet. So we have, uh, as we'll get into next week, a little bit more of the story. Uh, but God's creation is good. But God never claimed that it was perfect and God never claimed that it was safe. And so to the question of why do the good suffer, if we're coming back to Job's question, why do the righteous suffer, it is not always because it is punishment for wrongdoing. Sometimes it is because God's good and ordered and beautiful world is still a world that is wild and unsafe and untamable. What are your thoughts um, so far? How does this resonate with you? In the uh, Bible, it says that it stands up straight like a cedar. So I think it's just talking about the strength of the tail. Okay, I remember yeah. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Gotcha. So it might be a different, dangerous sort of creature that existed at the yeah. time. That's what I've heard before. It's actually the first mention of dinosaur in the Bible. Yeah. Good to know. Um, I, I personally lean towards these creatures being representative of, you know, we have Job who, who has a... Um, a Hebrew name and is is worshiping this Yahweh God and offering sacrifices like a good Hebrew person. But then we also have Job's friends who are not Hebrew. They are not Jewish. Uh, and they are kind of representative of ancient Near Eastern culture and other thought, thoughts at the time. And so I lean more towards God saying that God has control even over those things, even over the the gods of um, the ancient Near Eastern world. Uh, but I think you can read it anyway. I think it works well, no matter how you read it. Uh, one, one commentary I read talked about him being semi-mythological. I, I sort of like that because yeah. I think it's, it's pretty definite that we see those two names in other ancient Near Eastern literature. Yes. But even if they were mythological, their, their origins might come from right. Potamus, a crocodile, or Right. You know, someone having seen that or a dinosaur. Yeah. We don't, we don't know really what Something that somebody caught a glim glimpse of and came back saying, you'll never believe what I yeah, saw. Exactly. <laughs> that fish that gets bigger every time you tell the story. <laughs> it sounds like a dinosaur until I breathe spiral. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Seriously, you're like, wait I, a minute. I remember reading this as a kid and you're like, this is so clearly a brontosaurus. Why is my NIV say it's a hippo? <laughs> The move towards that's probably a hippo, you guys, is from like the 19th century where we really didn't have all the skeletons yet. But oh wow, there's like this isn't some crazy scientist who brought back a skeleton. We've got dozens of these. Looks like this whole thing was actually existed, but I like we're landing there too, which is to say there's some you, you can find like not cave paintings, but like mosaics that look a lot like a dinosaur. We don't know if like 
Have they seen a dinosaur, or is this just a representation of the story right. that is, was still being told? And, you know, even if we talk about mermaids or unicorns, there may have been something they called someone at one time. Right. I think that's that's what they were saying. Right. I really liked Fletcher's point last week too that we really got to consider this as poetry. Yes. And not always try to <coughs> yes. scientific explanations. Yes. What is metaphor? Yeah. Well, well, and I think too, mythology can sometimes kind of take on its own, its its own, you know form in some ways. I'll, I'll share a story about her since she's not here, but my current foster daughter that I have uh, was talking about, she, we watched The Little Mermaid together, and uh, she was talking about how there are mermaids in this big river that they swim in in um, Guatemala, where she's from. And uh, I was like, oh, I've never seen a mermaid, have you? And she was saying, yes, she yes, she had. And, uh, and so I would imagine there's, you know, a lot of folklore about these things. And so when you see something jump out of the water, you just catch a glimpse of it, your mind automatically goes to, oh, that must be the thing that I've heard about, uh, so, but maybe it, maybe it is a mermaid. Who knows? That's right. That's right. Uh, yes. To your question, it is a wild and dangerous world. We don't know that. The longer I live the wilder it seems. Mm. And uh, there are things that we still don't understand, even with our science and our knowledge that we have. We've all learned that there are viruses that cannot be controlled. There are many things that, that make it kind of a wild and dangerous world and make us need to rely on God even more. Mm. So that, I think, to your point, um, I agree. It is a wild and yeah. dangerous world still. Yeah. That's, that's a good point. That, I think, based on everybody's right here, because I think these are metaphors, mm -hmm. uh, because we have viruses that are monsters that are worse mm -hmm. than they're described here. Yeah. We've also got leaders of governments around the world who are responsible for the deaths of millions. Yes. Uh, so it's it could be anything to mm -hmm. fill that fill in the blank of that metaphor. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And then you have to be a little careful read the Bible and do it as a metaphor. Because there's a lot of stuff, like, you know, like in yeah. the New Testament where it talks about women who remain silent in the church. Yeah. And people say, well, that was just the time period. What if loving yeah. your neighbor? What if that's just that time period? Maybe that's not now. Yeah. So, yeah, the metaphor is there in things. And there's a lot of poetry in the Old Testament. Yeah. But it's almost like you have to be a little careful with that at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. It takes discernment. We have to discern as a group what, uh, how to read Scripture and how to take Scripture seriously. Um, and taking Scripture seriously uh, can sometimes mean looking at a piece of Scripture and saying this is wisdom literature. The purpose of this is not to be uh, a history that is written down exactly as things mm -hmm. happen. It's meant to make you think, it's meant to make you wonder, it's meant to give voice to all of those things that you may have deep in your soul. So, um, I, I would love for us to get to some questions uh, and have some more conversation. So I wanna um, get through the end of the chapter, chapter 42. So Job comes to a place where he has the second response and he agrees with God. So his first response is, okay, if, if this is true, then I've said too much. I'm going to put my hand over my mouth and, and be silent. Um, and it's, it's hard to know Job's heart in that moment, but it seems like in the second response, he is satisfied with God's response. He fully agrees with God. Uh, he has said, 
okay, you're right, God. I do not have an expansive enough view of you to judge your actions. He says that he has spoken of things that he does not understand. I love this line. I had only heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. Uh, and it, it seems to me like he maybe got a little taste of that, the wildness, a little taste of that which cannot be tamed or controlled um, and, was, um, and was in awe of that in that moment. And then um, from here on out in 42, so there's, there's only a handful of verses left, uh, but we move from poetry back to prose. So again, first little bit where it's introdu- introducing um, the Satan character uh, at the very beginning is prose, and then the, the huge chunk of the book is poetry, and then we also have this little bit of, um, of prose as well that kind of bookends. And God says to Job's friends, um, I am angry. I'm angry with you because you have not spoken what is right about me. Um, And essentially, if you remember, Job's friends had said two things about what God would do. They had said, uh, if you repent of this sin, clearly you've sinned. And if you repent, then God will restore you uh, back to what you had before. He'll make you even even greater than you were before if you'll just repent. Um, Or if you continue on like this, God will punish you further. Um, And... when you kind of read the rest of the chapter, you think, well, okay, how were they wrong? Because Job is restored. Uh, But Job is not repenting of some imagined infraction. Um, Job's heart is changed by an encounter with God that shifted what he viewed God as, but he is not repenting of some wrong behavior that, um, you know, he's he's not buying into this transactional model of if I do something wrong, then this will happen, and if I do something, if I do something right to fix it, good things will happen. So um, um, then God offers reconciliation to Job's friends as well. So even though God says, I'm angry with you, you have not spoken what's right about me, he does offer them a chance at reconciliation through Job offering sacrifices for them, uh, which I just, I just love uh, because this whole book reminds us that we can be angry with God and that uh, we can wrestle with God. And uh, even, even you know, something as big as saying things about God that aren't true are not unforgivable. God has mercy and compassion for all of it. Um, and then we have, after this, we have Job being restored um, to twice as much before. Um, so how, how might this differ from the theology of the book that uh, of the book of Job that this is debunking. So if if Job gets twice as much as he got before, as he had before, what are we supposed to take away from this? The question maybe this sidesteps that mm-hmm. do, do we think or the conclusion of some of this is were these actual conversations that were recorded? Did Job actually say this? Was he a real person? Was God actually, are these his words? I mean, I don't know if that's the answer to the questions that we're asking. Yeah, those are big questions to wrestle with. Um, and because that helps a lot with metaphors yeah. and deciphering exactly yeah. when you mention that, that God said he made with his hands alongside did God say that? Yeah. yeah, it's a great question. Um, Are the two mutually exclusive? Yes. 
one gets behind you. We I like what Josh has been saying that restrictions are inspired. Yes. They're trustworthy. Yes. They're authoritative. Yes. And so we can take all of this and we do not have to. I don't even. It's fine if you want to believe that Joe and his friends really were perfect. I think that this is inspired. Yeah. Somebody is. And it, it's a trustworthy. Yes. And it's authoritative. And I can yes. Yeah, I love I love that word trustworthy um, because I think that there's a difference between um, truth and trustworthiness because I'm sure we have all known people who have used truth like a weapon, right? Um, well, you're just annoying. Uh, I'm just telling the truth. Uh, you look terrible in that dress. I'm just telling you the truth. Uh, but that doesn't m mean that if you are with somebody who is speaking to you in that way, that you are then, then that person is then trustworthy. Um, you know, there are things as a parent that you don't tell your child, not because you're keeping things from them, but because you're trying to be trustworthy. Because if you told them the truth about everything at age two or three or four before they could grasp it, um, that's, you would actually be breaking trust. You would be doing the opposite of what you were trying to do. And so I love that word, uh, trustworthy, um, as opposed to um, truth there. And not, and not that they're entirely different, but I think it adds a, a little bit of nuance that is helpful for me anyway. So, uh, yes. Do we see this as a literal piece of history? And I bet you've already covered that. It's my first time here. But, yes. Uh, do we see this as something that actually happened? Or do we see this as possibly the oldest literature of all the Old Testament, yeah. or the Hebrew Scriptures, and it is like an expanded parable mm -hmm. where some very creative and inspired writers have put this story together over a period of several centuries by the edited and added more to it and whatever. Yes. Because it's difficult for us to, for me, to accept that ending of it like, Joe's got to be pleased. All this livestock, his servants, That's right. his children, and his right. wife never left. But right. Anyway, he shouldn't be sad anymore because he's got new kids now, right? Like, what do you do with that? <laughs> <laughs> That's... If you lose a child, yes. and then, okay, later you get another one, that still does not replace the one you lost. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's meant to teach us that good people or righteous people do suffer and they question there's nothing yes. wrong with that. Yeah. And then this is the way humans, by inspiration, understand the way God relates to us yeah. as I see it. Yeah. I, I know scholars who love God deeply. Uh, and who are wrestling with scripture very honestly, who come to two different conclusions on that question. I know scholars who I love and respect that believe that this is a literal story about a true person. And there are others that lean more on the side of this is wisdom literature. You look at this with um, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, or Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and then Job is the, the, the three pieces of wisdom literature in our scriptures. And um, as we talked about uh, kind of in the opening weeks, um, the book of Job doesn't, it doesn't start with, okay, and here's where this happened, here's the place this happened, here's the time frame it happened in. There's nothing in the story that gives us any kind of clues as to where this is situated or um, what time frame it's situated in. So that makes me lean towards wisdom literature. And when you look at it alongside of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, so Proverbs is, is lining up. 
if you do this, then this will happen. If you make wise decisions, good things will happen. If you make evil decisions or bad decisions, then these things will happen. And then you have Ecclesiastes, which comes along afterwards and says, nothing makes sense. Nothing makes sense at all. All of the world is crazy and it's insane, so what's even the point? And I think that that's why we have Job that ends the wisdom literature that's kind of balancing those two views and saying, wait a minute, um, neither one of those things is entirely accurate, so let's talk about where God is in the middle of this. So that's what I lean to, um, and uh, I also have you know, learned enough in my uh, short time in this earth to know that uh, I, don't, I don't have all the answers, and so I'm open to, to being wrong or not having it all right right now. I think he's... I mean, I think he's restoring his responsibility, his place in the world, his leadership, his economy. I mean, I don't know how much of a blessing 14,000 sheep are. I'm not a farmer. But that's a lot of work, you know, and, that, and that's a lot of responsibility. Uh, really, it is. I mean, it's like, at least he might have just give me my kids A lot of compost. Back. I just want, you know, a house living. Yeah. Now I've got all this to take care of again. I don't know. Yeah. I, yeah, that's and he an, restores that's his place in the world and the economy, yeah. and it's like he's still got his leadership and the people he employs, and you know, I don't know. Yeah. I, I, he misses those first, like everybody said. I think he misses those kids a lot. The yeah. First ones. Of and, course. Of course. You know. Yeah. Then he needs the other, he needs more kids to take care of. A thousand. <laughs> Somebody, somebody's got to. Job's old, you know, right? <laughs> Uh, so the the way that I have come to view this is this is not it's God is telling the friends what you said about me is wrong it is not through Job's repentance that I am restoring him um, and giving him double what he had before it is through love freely given it is not because he did all the right things it is just a free freely offered gift that Job could never have earned or uh, no, no matter how much he tried um, and so it's not a reward for good behavior. It's just a free gift. Um, and one of, the, one of the reasons that I believe that's what's going on here is because of this weird little thing that happens at the very end of Job. And it mentions, um, we can read it together here, um, in Job 42, um, starting in verse 12. So the Lord blessed Job in the second half of his life even more than in the beginning. For now he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 teams of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also gave Job seven more sons and three more daughters. He named his first daughter Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third Karen Hapuk. In all the land, no women were as lovely as the daughters of Job, and their father put them into his will along with their brothers. Job lived 140 years after that, living to see four generations of his children and grandchildren. Then he died an old man who had lived a long, full life. And I just find that fascinating because Job was given seven sons and three daughters, and we don't hear anything about the sons, but he names, by name, the three daughters. And there are other places in Scripture where women have very prominent roles and we never hear their names, but we know Job's daughters' names. And we know that even though he had seven sons, they got an inheritance, they were written into the will, which is not something that would have been normal in that time. And so I think that the way that I have come to view this is that Job recognizes that this is a gift freely given from God and that his response is to live out of that freedom and to offer that free, that love, um, that freely given gift 
uh, even even to his daughters um, by giving them an inheritance. What are your thoughts on that? It kind of feels to me like the, the story, we've already learned the lesson, and this is like the fairy tale ending, and they all live happily ever after. Yeah. Like, yeah. Round numbers, and I, I don't know, I'm not a scholar or Hebrew scholar, but like art seven and three, aren't those kind of like important numbers? You're exactly so, right. Spot on. And 140 years, too, that's like 70 times that's, two. So it, that's it right. all feels a little bit too perfect and symmetrical. Yeah. But I think that's just kind of a formulaic. That's and right. Then we put a bow on this, and it's... Right. You got it. <laughs> that's kind of how I think it. Right. Right. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. It's, uh, you know, especially especially when you're, you're talking about... Um, oral tradition, there, there are formulas that are passed down um, in, in openings and closings and in how uh, things are structured. So that would make sense to me for sure. Yeah. Any other? Go ahead. It's interesting that his number of children is not double. It's the same. It's yeah. the same number of children. Yeah. yeah. Maybe his wife put her foot down. No. <laughs> <laughs> 20 kids is too much. <laughs> and I also find it interesting that, um, that when Job's brothers and sisters and acquaintances came, come to him at this time, they're still comforting and consoling. Mm-hmm. So obviously he's still suffering. Mm-hmm. It actually says nothing about uh, his infirmity. Well, I, I forget now, what was it? Right, the, yeah. the boils or, mm-hmm. yeah. It says nothing about that. Yeah. Excellent point. Yes. Uh, among the scholars, what would they say in a sentence is the whole point of the <laughs> Um, that's a, that's a, that's a great, that's a great question. Uh, because I think, for me, anyway, um, the, the most helpful way that I have heard about approaching scripture is that it is like a gem that has um, many different cuts in it. And so depending on which way you turn it, the light is going to hit it a little bit differently and uh, light's going to refract off of it a little bit differently. And so um, there are dozens of ways we could turn the gem that is this book of Job. Uh, but I, for me, um, at this point in my life and I'm open to that changing. Uh, but for me, I think the point of the book of Job is to say, um, in the midst of suffering, you can bring your suffering to God. God cares about it, and there's nothing, there's, there's no question that's too hard or off limits to bring to God. But, um, but there's so much more, too, so... We've got about five minutes left, and so I do have a few questions. Um, So Job seems satisfied by God's response, and I'm not going to call it an answer because I don't think it's an answer, uh, but it is a response. Um, What about you? Are you satisfied with God's response to Job? What does it leave you feeling? You can be be honest in here. (laughs) No, this is a judgment-free zone. It's a lot to wrestle with. I think for me, it, it's encouraging response because to me, he's saying, you thought I'd left you, but I've been here all the while. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. And that you're not in charge. <laughs> you know, that we're not in charge. 
There is some great comfort in that, isn't there? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I just, I've always appreciated, I guess I was a teenager the first time I encountered Gazer's Box and Jelly. I just thought it was so awesome. Um, maybe it's also because I grew up listening to a lot of pop, but like, there's a certain amount of like, not just bravado because it's true, but this like dressing down of like, wait, 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 who do you think I am? And so I have, I feel like people, some of my friends that don't know the Bible haven't spent a whole lot of time with that aspect of God, wind up, you know, the loving and the caretaking and the um, sort of, I feel like at least it tempers my temptation and hold him as this kind of lofty, um, Sky wizard or mm. friendly, fluffy, mm-hmm. or yes. whatever. Like, because you can get there if you're not if you're not careful. Yes. There's times that there's other parts where he, he does seem very cuddly, but this he does not seem very cuddly in this response. And so I feel like it's you know it's maybe he is cuddly and a drill sergeant. <laughs> you know, like maybe he is all of these things. Um, yeah. So I I think that's what I like. And I tend to be kind of sarcastic, so I, it's, and he's like, I'm not going to chew my own horn, but that's it, I'm good, I, I can't let this go on any longer. So first, right, like, <laughs> right. and I, um, I guess this maybe is because that's the way I like to argue, and so I, I like that he did that. I yeah. thought it was on the receiving end, I don't know that I would have the same experience. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that that's, I don't know if it's satisfying, but I think it's remarkable for being in a Bible what else is yeah absolutely absolutely um if you were here a couple weeks ago you heard me share this but um i love the bible project has a a, another um video on holiness which i have found really helpful uh so if you get a chance go check it out it's just a few minutes long but it talks about um it's it's answering all kinds of questions about okay why sacrifice and what's going on in in exodus and leviticus and some things like that but it talks about god being holy and it talks about um it gives a metaphor of being like the sun. So the sun is is the source of life, right? So we plants grow with sun, and we need sun. And uh, without the sun, like we, this earth would not exist. The sun's pretty important. But um, I don't know about you, but I get sunburned if I'm not careful. And uh, the sun can also be dangerous uh, if you get too close to it. Uh, the power that is within the sun is dangerous. And so it's not it's not bad. Um, in fact, it's good. It is the source of life. But there is some reverence and some holiness there. And so I, I, I like to think about that in the temptation to view God. Like you said, it's kind of cuddly. Is I think I think God, you know, is is the giver of life, and God does want to draw us into God's presence. And, um, you know, God is also very powerful. And um, as He says to Job. Um, you do not know what I have my eyes on, and so please don't be presumptuous about uh, about what I what you think that I'm doing based on your limited human perspective. Along those lines, I think it's the the, the book just really I think gives a picture of what God looks at what we call righteous anger, mm. and it's a temp it's it's a temper tantrum. He's seeing a ter- a two year old temper tantrum, mm. and. If you wonder what we look like, I mean, just Google it. Airline freakout video. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, you know, and I probably Google that stuff too much, but I mean, but you look at how people act out there, and, and 
in public yeah. and you know we look at that and say that's crazy well that's how God looks at us trying <laughs> our hand at righteous anger yeah we don't have that right. we should do right. righteous anger yeah because what is what is righteous what does it mean to be righteous so it's more the uh, like a lot of the Old Testament the truth and the compassion of God and that and a lot of people look at the Old Testament and they see the wrath of God but if you really look at it there's a lot of compassion. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Unfortunately, are out of time, and I want to be respectful of that. Uh, but um, I would imagine in the near future we will have a class where we just answer questions that you're left with about suffering and about Job, and uh, and so uh, here's a couple more questions I was going to ask, which you might uh, steal and ask uh, uh, down the road. Uh, but be be thinking about what what you're left wrestling with, what you're left wondering about. Um, ways that maybe you um, aren't fully satisfied with God's response to Job or um, what you're still left with. Because I think that's the point of the book of Job, right, is that we can wrestle with this, and the best way to wrestle with it is together. Um, and so uh, we'll do that at a later time. But thank you all so much for your... Yes. We sure will. Yep. Absolutely. New, new classes start, I believe, September 11th. Is that a Sunday? Um, but... It'll be after Labor Day that new classes start, so you're you're stuck with me till then. So, <laughs> yep. So see you all. See you all next week. Absolutely.